0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany,
1: which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. It was November the 5th, 1974, and I was getting some very funny looks. I was sitting in Dublin Airport awaiting the arrival of a London flight, but I wasn't meeting a passenger. My job was to collect a smallish cargo bundle of vital importance so I was too worried and preoccupied to care about the looks anyway. It was only on using the bathroom that I saw myself, a grey and grimy shadow with a dust-streaked face beneath hair liberally besprinkled with grey grit. I was a dead spit for Dickens Miss Havisham. I was also a tiny part of theatrical history. Four hours earlier, the final run-through for Noel Pearson's production of West Side Story had broken for lunch at the Olympia Theatre. The lavish and expensive set had been tweaked. A couple of dance cues were tightened. The musical director was making sure that the sound balance between orchestra pit and stage was perfect, instruments and voices balancing not competing. A lunch break was called. Sometimes that doesn't happen when productions are fraught, despite equity rules. Most performers are prepared to put the work first in the tense run-up to opening. This time, the break just might have saved their lives. The musicians packed up their instruments and streamed out of the pit. The dancers and actors left through the stage door in Crampton Lane. One hour, they were told. That hour never happened. Only a few minutes after the stage lights were dimmed, a deafening growl echoed through the empty building. Even the street seemed to shake. The proscenium arch, the great steel crossbar above the front of the stage, in place since the theatre opened as Dan Lowry's Star of Air and Music Hall in 1879, collapsed across the orchestra pit, taking parts of the ornate boxes closest to the stage with it. Numb, frightened and almost bewildered to be alive, the cast and orchestra returned to view the devastation from the street, as emergency services took over. The swirling dirt and dust enveloped everyone, and realisation dawned that there'd be no opening night for the production that had involved weeks of gruelling, exacting, exhausting work. It would have been one of the most glamorous and extravagant shows Dublin had seen in a long time. Pearson was almost a newcomer to theatre in Dublin, but had already dazzled audiences with productions of Jesus Christ Superstar and Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, so there were high expectations for this one, in a town where musicals had never quite been theatrically top of the tree. But at least everyone was alive. None more than Noel Pearson, who took no time to complain. Always laconic, he swore a fair bit, but seemed extraordinarily calm as he hit the telephones while other people wondered if and when the show might be salvaged. Months, they speculated gloomily. Most of them didn't know their knoll. There was a small, unused cinema, not in the best of Nick, in Phibsborough. No backstage facilities, of course, no lighting rig, no orchestra pit, no dressing rooms for a large cast with many quick changes. The stage was hardly more than a narrow platform, but there were seats for an audience. The state would do. Cast and crew were ferried from Dame Street to Phibsborough, leaving the dust enveloped remains of the venerable Olympia behind them. This was no time for tears, bewildered or otherwise. Next problem. The musicians played from the complicated, closely orchestrated Leonard Bernstein Oscar winning score. They were the best gig men in Ireland, but there was no way they could improvise. And the sheet music was buried beneath tons of rubble and plaster. Another phone call, this time to London, to the music publishers. Could they put a complete set of dots for all the orchestra parts on a plane within an hour? They could. That was how I found myself shedding dust all over the Arrivals Hall in Dublin Airport. I was working as a publicist for the production, a fairly easy job in what were supposed to be the circumstances. But I'd never envisaged this as part of the job. Clutching the scores like the gold dust they were, I headed back to town. Unbelievably, things were set to go. Noel Pearson was lugubriously calm as always. The lead members of the cast, among them the then rising star Tony Kenny, used to dressing room facilities that were at least adequate, now found themselves reduced to boys and girls, two shabby, tiny offices, each only the size of a decent walk-in wardrobe. Desks still in place were commandeered, one for the lads, the other for the girls. In those pre-mobile days, there was only one phone in the building. It was in the boys' dressing room, and they became used to covering their modesty when production and backstage staff, including me, invaded to carry on the production work as best we could. I can't remember anyone complaining, ever. I was reminded of that a few years ago as I watched a TV report from one of the many world tours of Riverdance. In some faraway city, in a massive state-of-the-art theatre, producer John McColgan was standing on the enormous stage, apologising to his indignant cast. There was a slight waiting or springing problem with the stage floor. They were flying in technical experts to fix it, John was explaining. And in the meantime, physiotherapists and masseurs were permanently on hand, to look after the dancers' precious legs. Nobody would begrudge them the care, but how times had changed, I thought, remembering the choreographer who also danced a star role in West Side Story, reconfiguring the complex choreography to suit the slice of space that was the stage in the State Cinema in Fibsborough. But I wondered how these 21st-century graduates from Irish dancing academies, many of them in the US, would have coped with the State Cinema on November the 5th 1974 because West Side Story opened on time the same night six hours after the Olympia theatre fell in and the Olympia wouldn't reopen for three years the state is now a furniture showroom <laughs>
2: I feel pretty, oh so pretty, I feel pretty and witty and
3: gay,
1: and I pity any girl who's in me
3: today. I feel charming, oh so charming.
1: It's alarming how charming I feel and so pretty. That I hardly can believe I'm
4: real. I've missed visiting art galleries over the last two years of our pandemic walking through rooms in the National Gallery saluting old friends, Lady Lavery in all her finery, the poor wounded poacher slumped in his chair attended by that calm young woman, the maid glancing out the window as her mistress writes a letter. I've missed the quiet, mysterious atmosphere of galleries and being in the presence of works of art. I've missed the little nods of acknowledgement, if not recognition from the custodians, those guardians of the miraculous and then emerging into the street and being dazzled by the sunlight when we my beloved and i visit new places we invariably make for the local gallery i cannot in all honesty say that i remember individual works of art from each of the galleries we have visited in some cases i would be hard-pressed to say what the building looked like But then there are galleries like the Guggenheim in Venice that are unforgettable. Forget the art. Just stand on the terrace overlooking the Grand Canal and watch the world go by. And for a few moments you are part of a world of wealth beyond measure, all spectacle and glamour. And you almost forgive the rich for being, well, rich. And there are also unpretentious galleries which you visit with low expectations until you come across a work that stops you in your tracks. The Sleeping Shepherd Boy, a 19th century sculpture by Raffaele Beleazzi in the Civic Gallery in the town of Ascoli Piccino in central Italy, is one such work. It is extraordinarily realistic, detailed and beautifully carved in marble. You want to reach out and gently shake the boy to see if he will wake it as so lifelike. Why has this particular work stayed with me so vividly since I first saw it some 20 years ago? It is expressive and tender and I suppose sentimental and I love it. But the single work of art that has stayed with me more than any other comes from much closer to home. It is a small sculpture of an infant carved from limestone by Ushin Kelly in the early 1950s. It is a portrait of his daughter, Piccola. It is no more than 12 inches long, and it is one of the few pieces he carved from stone. The infant emerges from the stone, her head to one side, kicking her feet. It is as if Kelly carved directly, respecting the form of the rounded stone. The finished carving seems intuitive and loving and it invites you to hold and savour the weight and shape of the stone and the infant materialising from it. As a work of art, it is primal, personal and very beautiful. I saw the carving at an exhibition of Kelly's work in the mill at Kells Priory in Kilkenny in 2000. The exhibition featured small pieces in wood, ceramics and bronze from Kelly's personal collection, as well as this exquisite piece in limestone. All the work featured was intimate, far removed from his formal monumental work like The Children of Lear in The Garden of Remembrance or Chariot of Life in the Irish Life Mall in Dublin. The setting in The Old Mill in Kell seemed perfect. And driving back to Dublin, we were full of the quiet joy that art can bestow. Oisín Kelly married Ruth Gwynne, a veterinary surgeon whose father was provost of Trinity College. In 1946, the couple moved in with Ruth's widowed mother, Olive, in the Gwyn family home Prospect House, a sprawling Georgian dwelling on three acres situated in Knockline, County Dublin. When the Gwyns bought the house in the 1930s, it came with a coach house, stables and outbuildings. There was also a walled garden, a rose garden and a pond with ducks. The fields attached to the property were lined with mature trees. There were two entrances with a gate lodge at each. Recently, I went in search of Prospect House. One lodge survives, and the gate posts. The National Inventory of Architectural Heritage attributes the sculpted letters on the gate posts to the artist. A small estate of modern houses has been built inside the walls of the orchard. Prospect House itself and the outbuildings, as well as the Second Lodge, are gone, demolished to make way for the M50. And there is nothing to indicate that Ushin Kelly, sculptor, artist, lived and worked there for 35 years. This October will mark the 40th anniversary of Ushin Kelly's death. I'd love to see an exhibition of his work that included the limestone carving of his infant daughter, Piccola. Kelly liked to refer to himself as a craftsman rather than an artist, and it seems impolite to quibble with the great man. But his little limestone carving is the work of an artist, and I treasure my encounter with it.
0: Three decades ago, the Commitments was the talk of Dublin. Alan Parker, director of Bugsy Malone, Fame and Mississippi Burning, was in town making a film based on Roddy Doyle's debut novel about a band of Northside Dubliners playing black American soul music. An open audition was held in the Mansion House, attracting over 1,500 aspiring singers, actors and musicians. It was the X Factor of the 90s. And when the film hit Irish cinema screens in 1991, it was an instant success. It went on to win several BAFTA awards and was nominated for Golden Globe and Academy Awards and regularly tops the list of favourite Irish films of all time. Build as a cast of unknowns, it featured some names which were already familiar to me. Commitmentette Maria Doyle-Kennedy, who played Natalie, sang with the Black Velvet Band and Hot Flowers. For years after the film was released, Most people associated Glenn Hansard with his role as Outspan Foster, but I already knew him as the lead singer of my favourite band, The Frames. But at 16 years old, it was Andrew Strong, who was the breakout sensation. He nailed the role of obnoxious lead singer Deco Cuff, the bus conductor with the voice of a soul king. A limited number of £5 tickets went on sale for the premiere in the Savoy Cinema, I persuaded my sister Barbara to go up and try for tickets on her lunch break, but they'd already sold out. My mum let me lament my bad luck for an hour or two, before dangling an envelope with the precious invites before my disbelieving eyes. She'd gone into town especially for me that morning, and managed to bag two tickets just before they sold out. There was a fantastic buzz on O'Connell Street on the night of the premiere, with camera crews and photographers milling around, capturing the cast and special guests as they arrived. I was thrilled to see Lima Wayne Lee, Hot House Flowers' lead singer, dressed in a suit and sandals with his long hair tied back. I'd interviewed him for my school magazine earlier that year. He was being nabbed constantly by press, but I managed to say hello and have a brief chat. Myself and my friend Andrea walked through the foyer several times, soaking up the excitement and glamour. A man I brushed off smiled at me. It was only the next day when I read the write-ups in the paper I realised it was the actor, John Hurt. We couldn't believe it when we went to take our seats in Screen One. Our tickets were for the front row. Brona Gallagher and Angeline Bowell, who with Maria Doyle Kennedy made up the backing singers, the Commitment Deaths, were sitting right behind us. Everyone cheered as each actor made their first appearance on the screen and throughout the film applause and laughter permeated the packed room. The Commitments were shot almost entirely in Dublin. Darndale, Gardiner Street, Ballsbridge, Bridge, the Waterfront Pub, outside the Mansion House. It was Dublin before the Celtic Tiger. Kids playing on abandoned cars and whizzing by on bikes. Teenagers and adults chain-smoking and cursing. Street markets, crowded dole offices, money worries and dreams of achieving fame thwarted by in-band frictions and jealousies. It was funny and gritty and heartwarming and betrayed a life that was familiar to me, but one that I'd not witnessed on screen before. My heart soared as the cast sang Destination Anywhere on the Dart as it passed over the River Liffey, a journey I had taken many times, but had never imagined would be captured on film. When the final credits rolled, the audience jumped to their feet for a standing ovation. Alan Parker spoke, and the entire cast came down to the front, just a few feet from us, and were visibly moved by the rapturous reception. Alan Parker later said, The Dublin screening was the best we had anywhere in the world. The commitments brought the city I grew up in to life, but now when I think of that premiere, it's my mom's kindness that shines through. She had queued up to get tickets for a film she knew little about, just to make her teenage daughter happy. She was always keeping articles for me. The summer I went to Chicago on a J1 visa, she sent over a parcel with newspaper clippings of Dolores O'Riordan's wedding, as well as the latest edition of Hot Press, because she knew I'd be dying to keep up with all the news. She'd often say, as I'd arrive in from a night out with pals, or your man you like was on the Late Late Show tonight? Or did you see that band you love or mentioned in the Herald? Decades later when my son started supporting Liverpool, she'd studied the match results so she could chat to him about their position in the league or how their manager might be feeling about an upcoming match. It's still a topic of conversation between them now. She is our very own commitmentette, always there in a supporting role, lovingly shining the spotlight on her family's passions.
4: Young girls, they do get weary.
2: The little island of Procida, with its brightly coloured houses and labyrinthine roofs and alleyways, will be Italian capital of culture for 2022. It's by far the smallest of the three islands in the Bay of Naples, the other two being Capri and Ischia but it's one of the most densely populated rural areas in the world. I wonder if the island council will spruce the place up. If so, they may be tempted to remove the graffiti with which the island's walls are decorated, which to my thinking would be a loss. It's traditional in many parts of Italy to declare one's love for a girl by spraying messages on her wall in coloured paint, a tradition carried to extremes, it seems to me, on Procida. My friends, for example, have a beautiful daughter. They woke up one morning to discover that the wall facing their house had been decorated with the words. Ci vogliono miliardi di stelle per illuminare l'universo, ma basta un tuo sguardo per illuminare il mio cuore. They need billions of stars to light the universe, but one glance from you is enough to light my heart. They were not pleased. Officially, their daughter was not pleased either, but who knows the secrets of a 14-year-old girl's heart? At first glance, many of these lovers' mottos seem incredibly poetic and public. It's difficult to imagine an Irish teenager spraying a prospective lover's house with the words, I will love you minute by minute for all of my life. The parents would probably call the guards anyway. But in another sense, these declaratory revelations are a small part of the life of the island, which is lived largely under the eyes of one's neighbours. Everywhere there are public notices, political posters, advertisements for new laws or changes to old ones, initiatives of the commune, masses, changes to bus routes, films in the island's only cinema, concerts, weddings, warnings, prayers, political slogans, death notices. Little pink or blue hearts hang over doors with the legend E nata una bimba or E nato un bimbo and they tell the passerby that a baby girl bimba or a baby boy bimbo has been born to the house. Death notices, remembrances and thank yous are pasted on the sides of public buildings or churches. The family Scotto di Covella moved by the recent display of affection and esteem for our dear departed Comandante Michele, is deeply grateful, etc., etc. A car mounted with a loudspeaker tours the island periodically, calling out notices of import, like the town crier of old, a concert in the church of the Terra Morata, for example, or a strike on the ferries. This is a country, thanks to Silvio Berlusconi, where the television is dominated by wall-to-wall talent contests for scantily clad women. Serious information here passes via alternative, older channels. Sometimes what you hear does not immediately seem like information. Wherever you are, for example, you're in the hearing of at least one set of church bells, which ring out the hours and the quarters, day and night. They do not agree, of course so a sleepless night can seem one long experiment in campanology. But time too is information. On an island where time moves in a non-mechanical fashion, it is useful to know what the clock thinks. Of course, the perfect information, so beloved of certain economists, does not exist. To know that Comandante Michele is dead and that the expressions of grief gladdened his family is not to know anything about loss sincerity, love, or neighborliness. To know these things about people, one must, as my grandmother used to say, eat a peck of salt with them. A peck is a lot of salt. In truth, it means that the outsider like me, the tourist, the visitor, even an attentive and affectionate one can never know anything of real importance. But to return to the poetic declarations of love I don't know why, but I'm surprised and disappointed to discover that most of them come from the internet. There are whole websites dedicated to them. The one about the billions of stars, for example, turns up 57,000 hits on Google. I had hoped this fervent and eloquent desire was something unique to this pressure cooker of an island. I suppose I must content myself with the fact that young lovers here understand That love is hard to put into words. To borrow a declaration from one of those websites. If I were a poet, I would write you a poem. If I were a composer, I would write you a symphony. If I were God, I would dedicate paradise to you. But since I am only me, all I can say is, I love you, amore mio.
5: Augusta Dieter was born in Germany in May 1850, and she has some remarkable similarities with our mother. Ma is a May baby too, although she was born in Ireland in 1937. Like Augusta, Ma was also born into a working class family and started her trade as a seamstress at the age of 14. Like Augusta, Ma got married to a kind man, had children, and Embrace the joys and challenges of ordinary family life. And sadly, both Ma and Augusta were diagnosed with dementia. Upon Augusta's death in 1906, a post mortem was carried out by Dr. Alos Alzheimer. The brain biopsy yielded some interesting findings. Aside from the usual plaques that had been found. In other senile patients over 70 years old, the 56 year old Augusta's neurons presented with tangles of a protein called tau. Thus, Augusta Dieter became the first person with a diagnosis of a specific kind of dementia called Alzheimer's disease. Dementia is the Latin for out of your mind. No kidding. Arma went wandering. In the bad snows. Played chicken with the 40 buses on the to stew carriageway. Forgot how to work the remote controls. Lost her bank cards. Could not remember the days of the week. Or named the vegetables on her dinner plate. And even tried to cook a children's book in her microwave oven. Out of your mind is right. Even though my siblings and I knew of these strange changes in behaviour and even stranger happenings, We were shocked when Ma got a diagnosis of dementia. Most medical historians now agree, dementia has always been with us. Pythagoras, the ancient Greek doctor and mathematician, described the seventh age of life as a decline in the mind and the body. Whereas the Roman philosopher Cicero argued that the decline in the body does not mean a decline in the mind, and indeed, the older we get, the more wisdom we might have. Dementia was first used as a medical diagnosis in 1797 by a French doctor called Pinel, and Auguste Dieter was diagnosed by Dr Alzheimer in 1906. In the past, people living with dementia were regarded as sinners, and their condition was seen as God's punishment. Or worse, some were viewed as possessed by demons and burned at the stake. Things have improved, but the stigma remains. Indeed, many individuals or their families still hide dementia and keep it a secret for fear of social judgment. This fear has dreadful consequences. Like most diseases, the later the diagnosis, the worse the outcome. Our Ma was lucky. We were blessed with good neighbours on our estate in Finglas. One neighbour found Ma wandering the road while his car was getting towed in the bad snow. He walked Ma back home, made her tea and called me. The woman next door was forever in and out of our house, showing Ma, once more, how to use the TV remote controls. The local post office workers were endlessly patient when Ma lost her PPS card, savings book and the free TV licence application form. None of these things stopped Ma's diagnosis. But it did help us, her children, to know that our community was on our side. Tuesday the 21st of September is World Alzheimer's Day. This globally coordinated day of awareness was launched nearly 30 years ago to educate people about alzheimers it also helps destigmatize dementia and offers hope support and solidarity to people living with dementia their families and the medical professionals who treat the disease or hunt down treatments and a possible cure this tuesday is world alzheimers day but we can't have our daily visit with ma because she died earlier this month. Her 18 grandkids and her three great-grandkids can no longer bring Ma the Cornetto ice creams she loved. I won't be able to sing songs with me Ma anymore. Ma mightn't have been able to tell you the day of the week, but by Jesus, she could still belt out Molly Malone with the best of them. This Tuesday, there will be a gathering to celebrate the life of Bernadette Hegarty, a woman who loved to dance and loved a sing-song with family and pals. I will recall Augusta Dieter and all the other patients and families living with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. Augusta Dieter was the first Alzheimer's patient. Sadly, Arma was not the last one but we long for the day when there will be no more Alzheimer's and no more dementia. Will we chance
1: it? Well, we'll chance it again for all time's sake. Mm -hmm.
4: try Try to to
1: remember
4: the kind kind of September September when when life was slow and and old. So mellow Try
3: morning's selection of new writing we heard The Day the Theatre Fell In by Emer O'Kelly, Ushin Kelly's Piccola as a Baby by Kevin McDermott, Our Very Own Commitment Debt by Jackie Lynham Love Songs of Proshida by William Wall and The First Alzheimer's Patient by Rachel Hegarty. The music this morning was I Feel Pretty from the soundtrack to West Side Story sung by Marnie Nixon. Foray's Dolly Sweet for piano duet verses played by Katya and Marielle Lebeck. Try A Little Tenderness, sung by Andrew Strong and The Commitments. O Sol Mio, sung by Enrico Caruso. And Try To Remember, sung by Noel Purcell and Cecil Sheridan. And that was recorded at the concert to mark the closing of the Theatre Royal. Sunday, Misselny's broadcast coordinators are Carolyn Dempsey and Willa McCartney and the producer is Sarah Binchy.
5: RTE Radio 1.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany Podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.